0: Psychology Systems Limited are the leading provider of radiotherapy ancillary equipment in the UK and Ireland. Serving the community for over 22 years, we pride ourselves on exceptional service and quality products. Please take a moment to visit our website www.osl.uk.com and take a look at our product lines which include Macromedics for patient immobilisation and IBA dissimetry for all your radiotherapy quality assurance needs. We are more than happy to take your questions so please do get in touch via our website or email inquiry at osl.uk.com and one of our specialist team will be available to assist you Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiog oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 54. My name is Naaman joel Crason and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara.
1: Hi everyone.
0: A big thank you to our last guest Lucy Eldridge, who talked about her role as a dietitian and how she helps support patients through cancer treatment if you haven't done chance yet please do go and take a listen so we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening uh, nick fernan who will be discussing her experience of cancer and returning to work as an allied health professional in the nhs hi nick hi
2: thanks for having
0: me nice to have you um so could you tell us a bit about your role in the nhs and what you do
2: yeah, so um, I'm also a dietitian, um, but I work in a slightly different area, so I'm actually a gastroenterology dietitian, and I specialise in intestinal failure. Um, I've been a dietitian for 10 years now. It's my 10-year anniversary in the NHS and as a dietitian. Um, and what I predominantly do is my patients have intestinal failure, and I actually assess them and prescribe um Something called parental nutrition, which is nutrition into the veins. Um, so, um, and I'm also a supplementary prescriber, um, which I have done for about a year now. So I can prescribe certain medications, parental nutrition, um, and yeah, that's kind of what I do.
1: How did you get into being a, di- being a dietitian?
2: Oh, um, so it started way, way back. So when i was 16 i was really into sport and i was at a hockey camp and i had a talk by a sports dietitian so when i was 16 i wanted to be a p teacher um, or sports science that was all i wanted to do i just wanted to play sport and coach people and teach people how to do sport and um, i went on this hockey camp and we had a talk by a dietitian about the importance of nutrition and um, for sport and exercise and then that's when it all changed I was like you know what I love cooking I love food and I love sport so I was actually going to be a sports dietitian um and I was going to be a sports dietitian up until I went to university and did my placements in the NHS and that's when it all changed and I decided that whilst it would be rewarding to help people gain that extra second in their race or win that gold medal. Actually what I wanted to do was help people that were sick um day to day and help them with their health. And never look back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Do you are you just clinical now or do you do lots of other things as well?
2: Um so I'm predominantly clinical. Um but I have just taken on a comment, So I'm currently doing a team lead role. So I've got a team of about nine other dietitians that I manage and appraise, and allow them their annual leave, <laughs> kind of, I say, look after and nurture, um, but mostly clinical. And that's what I really, really enjoy, the clinical side of things. Um, as part of my role, we also have to do a lot of audit and research, as I'm sure you do as, as radiographers um and where I work we're actually like a tertiary referral center we're a national center for intestinal failure so um I actually have to do quite a few presentations at conferences as well which I find a little bit nerve-wracking but
1: so can you tell us a little bit about your cancer experience if you don't mind please
2: yeah of course um So I'll start at the beginning. (laughs) It's a bit of a long story. Um, So I was playing hockey and I fell and I fell on my right side. And didn't think anything of it. Got back up, carried on playing, got home, had a shower. And it was when I was in the shower and I was like, oh, my right side really sore. Um, Oh, it must've been where I fell. And then I was like, oh, that feels a bit strange. And it was in my breast. It felt like, it felt like a grape in my breast. Um, and I was like, a mm, bit odd. Maybe it's because I fell. I don't know why, because I'm a healthcare professional. I should have just known what to do. Should have just rang the GP, but I rang my dad. <laughs> should do. Um, level-headed dad. And he said, yep, yeah, just book an appointment at the GP. Um, you won't get in for two weeks. So see if it goes down in the two weeks. Um, and if it does, you can cancel it. And if it doesn't, you've got your appointment. So the next day, I rang the GP um and then couldn't get in for, i think it was about 10 days i can't remember exactly but um managed to go and see the gp and she was absolutely lovely Um she had a feel of it and she said yeah don't know what it is um i'm gonna have to refer you on to the hospital um to have a, have a look at it because i can't tell you what it is just by feeling it which I knew that that would happen and um, I knew that I would be put on the two-week pathway um, essentially for a lump that we didn't know what it was and um, it didn't come and go with my menstruation and um, so she was just like I it doesn't feel like a cyst but I don't know what it is so off you go and um, so she referred me I was then referred to the breast unit at the local hospital um, and. I was seen within two weeks, and he was on the two week pathway I was seen. Um, I was actually first assessed by a specialist nurse practitioner, um, which I was absolutely fine with because I was like, you've probably got more experience than any doctors that I know. (laughs) Absolutely fine by me. He had another good feel. he asked me lots of his about my history so is there any history in the family which there isn't um he asked me again did it come and go with my menstrual cycle i said no it just feels like it's there all the time um so he said well i'm gonna have to send you for an ultrasound so off i went to the other part of this building um and had an ultrasound by um another nice lady <laughs> um put me completely at ease and then she said it's not a cyst I can tell you that but I can't tell you what it is um she said it's got I, I remember these words so clearly it's all smooth apart from one side of its jagged which which worries me slightly so I'm gonna take a biopsy is that okay <laughs> yeah go for it um so she um gave me a local anesthetic and biopsied it she showed me what she'd taken I don't know why (laughs) she was like proof that I've taken it um and then said that I had to be careful with my exercise for two days I was like great (laughs) no exercise for two days good excuse um and I left and I went off and they said we'll see you in two weeks so off I went I went back to work I didn't think anything of it I did I do remember I did just forget I was just like yeah it'll be nothing it'll be nothing um so then i went into work the morning of my appointment for the results and then i i left i think um no i didn't go into work that day i didn't go into work that day because i said i remember saying to my manager i'm going to go and get my results if i come in you know it's okay and if i don't come in you know it's not good um so off i went to the hospital and I was called in by the specialist nurse practitioner. And as soon as I walked in that room, I knew it was cancer. um, Because there was a, a Macmillan nurse sat there with him. And I was like, you wouldn't have a Macmillan nurse sat with you if this wasn't cancer. And I knew as soon as I walked in the room. So he sat me down and he said, I don't need to tell you, do I, you know? And I said, yeah, I know. And then, that was how I got diagnosed and then it was a whirlwind after that.
0: <laughs> so you involved your manager quite early then because um, not everyone kind of does that.
2: No so I was honest with my manager I said because I, I had to go to an appointment and um, so my GP appointment was after work so that was fine but the breast clinic appointment wasn't it was it, they're Wednesdays and um, it was in work and I I I was honest with her from the start. I said, I found a lump in my breast and I need to go to this appointment. I can't miss it. Um, and she was like, Oh yeah, you do, but it'd be nothing to worry about. Don't worry. And I was like, yeah, it'll be nothing to worry about. And then I had to tell her that I'd had to have a biopsy um, and had to go to this next appointment. So yeah, I think, I think I have a good relationship with my manager. Um, but I also just didn't feel like I had anything to hide with it. But I can see why some people don't want people to know from the start. Um, only my manager knew. My team at the time, my colleagues, didn't know. I just said, oh, I've got an appointment that I need to go to. They didn't know. It was just my manager that knew.
0: So what, what happened next?
2: Um. So the day that I got my results... Um, the specialist nurse practitioner said are you okay to basically get going (laughs) I had so many questions (laughs) spouting questions at him um I'll never forget the first question I asked him not will I die not will I survive not what are my treatments will I lose my hair that was my first question will I lose my hair um And then we had a conversation. He said, are you okay? Can we take some more biopsies? I was like, that's fine. I'm happy to do it today. He asked me if I could go for a mammogram. And he said, we don't have to do any of this today. You can think about it. I said, nope, I want the mammogram now. The quicker I can do all this, the quicker we can get going with treatment. So I had a mammogram and another biopsy that day. Um, He also started telling me about the genetic side of things Um, and if I wanted to be tested for the genetics I said take the blood out of me now so he took the blood that day Um, and so that was all done on that day and then I think I saw the oncologist, oh we also talked about fertility preservation so they referred me that day for that um and then i think it was a week later i saw the oncologist to discuss treatment um he the specialist nurse practitioner had already started to talk to me a little bit about what treatment would be and that they would probably do chemotherapy then surgery then radiotherapy um but the in-depth of it he said we'll talk about with your oncologist just because there's a lot going on at the moment because i'd just been told i'd got cancer i'd gone for a a, another biopsy a mammogram and genetics and fertility preservation he was like we can't talk about the treatment today
0: i was going to say that's that's quite a lot of information to take on straight away especially when you've gone into a room where the healthcare professionals have said to you well you know what's coming
2: yeah they were lovely they were really nice and i think because they already knew what I did. They knew that I knew that it was bad news. And then they were very, I have to say, they were very led by what I was saying and what I was wanting. So um, they had some things I had to ask, like, am I okay to have the biopsy and the mammogram that day? Because they had the staff there to do it. So it was just a little bit easier to have that. But the genetics, um, they could see I just wanted all of the information so they were being very much led by how i was on that day and i was just like throw everything at me we need to get cracking with this right now but i do remember him saying just because you've been diagnosed now whether we start treatment in a week or we start treatment in four weeks it's not going to change anything just because we know what it is we don't need to start right now um he 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 I remember him saying that because I think he could see I was like oh we need to go now (laughs) um but he was like don't worry we need to plan this we need to get it right you need to do your fertility preservation um but just because you're going to do that doesn't mean that your outcome is going to be any different if we don't start for another six weeks I think they had to start treatment within eight weeks of me being diagnosed that was the criteria
0: so you were 29, um, did you go by yourself for this appointment?
2: No, um, so my other half, we've been together, I'm calling my other half, we're not married, but partner, boyfriend, I don't know, what do you call them after 10 years, I don't know. Um, he, he came with me, he, he's been to every single appointment, even when there was COVID, which we'll probably talk about later, and he couldn't come in, he used to sit outside the hospital and wait for me. Yeah. Wow. So no, he, he was with me in, in the room.
0: That's good. The fertility yeah. preservation as well is quite an early conversation to have, especially with all that news. Do you think that was yeah. another kind of hurdle to have to get through to before you started
2: treatment? Um I think I saw it as a distraction to what was really going on. Um because I started the fertility preservation was the first thing really started i think i was diagnosed on the wednesday or thursday and i had an appointment with the fertility preservation on the monday um i think i saw it as a distraction from what was really going on and it was something to focus my mind on but it it did spark a lot of conversations between me and my other half on what we were where we were going did we want children like we were just living a 29 year old (laughs) enjoying life traveling like not really thinking we knew we wanted children but not how how we had to go about that if that makes sense um but I think I don't know if I ever really thought about it I was just like it's being offered to me I'm very lucky that it's being offered to me because not all areas do, I think you should it is if you've got cancer but I've spoken to other people that have had difficulties and um I was just very lucky it was offered and it was so quick that it started I mean I didn't know anything about IVF before before this so that was a whole new area and whirlwind that I didn't even know about um So
1: we do often find that obviously patients are in the whole pathway and actually it's really rapid and they don't necessarily get time to process everything that's happening. Um, And I just know from my own experience of, of being a patient, whether that's going through IVF or cancer treatment, you kind of do get swept along in it all. You'll get a consent form one day and then procedures start or you go for diagnostic tests and or you go for a pre-op and you can definitely get swept along in everything. And it's not actually until afterwards that you have time to actually process what you've gone through. Um, And I definitely think that I've seen that with patients who've come through and have had opportunities to kind of engage with consent, talk to their oncologist, talk to a wider healthcare team, but it isn't actually until after the treatment's finished that patients have time to then reflect upon their own experiences and really take in everything that's happened to them. And I definitely think that's something that can happen when it comes to fertility, where treatment will commence and people haven't had time to process um, everything surrounding fertility and what it means to actually have to go through those fertility procedures. Um, And even knowing if you want a family, especially I can imagine for some of the paediatric patients um, and those young adult patients where, you know, fertility will be compromised and, you know, it may be something that you've never, ever thought about before and yet you're confronted with having to kind of face... Do you want children? Do you want to go through these processes? And what does that mean for your future? Can you tell us a little bit about what you had to do for fertility preservation?
2: So for my fertility preservation, um, we had the initial appointment. So the first decision we had to make um, was, do we want to freeze just my eggs? Or do we want to freeze embryos? So that was the first decision we had had to make so if we froze just eggs um that meant that in the future of me and my other half went together I could get them fertilized by somebody else um, and they were hot they they were wholly mine Um, if we did embryos then they're shared between me and my partner so if we split it up I would have to get his permission to have that embryo um and also there was logistic that you have to think about if you die what you want them what to happen to them um so for example for the embryos if my partner died I could still use them but if I died and my partner wanted to use them there was a whole other legal area that was just mind-boggling um so I could do eggs on the NHS. I couldn't do embryos on the NHS. I had to fund the embryos. Um, but after a lengthy, lengthy discussion with the fertility doctor, I'm sure they've got a fancier title. Um, (laughs) um, because of my age, I was 29. Um, she seemed pretty confident that my menstruation would return and that I probably wouldn't have too many problems conceiving in the future based on I had a lot of blood tests before we even started the fertility treatment to check my fertility so she felt that she felt quite confident that this was um, an insurance policy so we just went down the egg route in the end Um, so what it involved was a large box of medications and needles arrived and um, I remember my dad being here when it arrived and he's not very good with needles and I was like dad I just need you to help me count this and he was like I can't count it <laughs> I'm not even open the needle and um, so in the end he had the tick he had the tick list and I was counting what was what was in there um, and they have to be stored in the fridge. So I had to do an injection in the morning. So the first one I got my partner to do, and then I said, you never come near me with a needle again. He bruised me, Um, and in the end, I just did it on my own. It it wasn't too bad. Um, Had to draw up the medicine. It's the same healthcare (laughs) program, how do I do this? And so drew up the medicine, and then I just injected it in, and it wasn't that bad, to be fair. Um, I'm not too squeamish, so it wasn't too bad. And then I had to go every other day for a scan to check the growth of my eggs. Um, and then I think on the second week, it went up to two injections a day. Um, and again, was going for the scans every other day. It's so quite a lot of hospital appointments just for the fertility because it was every other day. Um, Excuse me. And then I had to give myself some injections just before they took the embryos out, um, um, the eggs out, sorry. So they were taken out on a Friday and they're taken out under a general anaesthetic. So I had to go in for a general anaesthetic. Um, And then I went into the room, fell asleep, woke up and they'd taken some eggs out apparently. Um, I do remember they tried to get your other halves involved, which is great um so my other half said that there was um three men sat in the waiting room by the theater because what they do is he said they come out with this like big refrigerated box and they hand it to the partner the partner has to carry this box back to the fertility department (laughs) so they handed this to my partner he was like what do I do with this and he said he like got to he like got to the lift and then he was like, the lift wasn't coming. I didn't know if I had like set time I had to get these delivered. And then he was like, the lift went up and not down. And then he was like, I was going to drop them. In the meantime, I was asleep. <laughs> um. So yeah, so it was quite, quite intense. It was quite an insight because I have a few friends that have had to go through IVF not because of cancer just because they they can't conceive and I had no idea of the psychological impact that they must be going through for me it was a means and an insurance policy so I was like right well I just have to do this and hope that I get some eggs um and I I had a really really good response think I've got 20 eggs on ice as I call them um so I had a really good response, but I can imagine if you're doing this when you've already been trying for for so long and then you, the pressure of having to produce enough eggs and then embryos, and I, I can only imagine what people go through. For me, it was a distraction from what was really going on. Um, but I have to say the team there as well, amazing. So lovely, so thoughtful. They would give you if you had a half an hour appointment but you needed an hour you wouldn't know they would they would just give you all the time in the world nothing was too much to ask it was a really calm and quiet environment it was this tiny little area in the corner of a hospital and you just you didn't think you were in a hospital it was just yeah it was a different area to hospital I'd never seen
0: yeah I think the pressure side is, is something that's come up on the podcast before whether it's you know like we've had friends as well with who've gone through ivf and they've really struggled it is the pressure um, i suppose the distraction is nice for you but i suppose did you have any kind of inkling of what was coming next with the treatment side of things so you knew you had to get through this and then start
2: so whilst i was doing the fertility i was also having appointments at the other hospital um for um discussing my treatment options and having the relevant scans that I needed so I remember I think one day I think I had three appointments in a day at two different hospitals and I didn't have a car (laughs) and I I mean I live in London so you think transport's okay but one hospital was not easy to get to um it was out in in the sticks a bit um so it it, it was a very busy time and it was during that time I, I was still trying to work. So I'd been diagnosed and I'd gone in and I said to my manager, no, I can work, I need to work, I need to come in, I need to work. And then I think I had the fertility appointment on the Monday, I was like, no, I'll be in on Tuesday. And then the Wednesday, I was like, I've only got an appointment in the morning, I'll be in. And then this appointment overran. And then, and then I had to go to the pharmacy. <laughs> If you've ever been to an NHS pharmacy, I love my pharmacy colleagues, but <laughs> takes some time. Um, and I had to bring my manager and be like, I'm not going to be in for this presentation I've got to give. And I just crumbled and I said, to her, I can't do this anymore. I said, I'm not in tomorrow because I've got an appointment and I'm coming in on Friday and I'm clearing my desk. I'm clearing everything that I need to. It's not fair on my patients. It's not fair on my team that... I'm trying to juggle it. But at the moment, it literally was an appointment every day. I couldn't do it anymore.
0: When did you go back to work?
2: Um, So that was the start of December. And then I was back in work in August. So I was off for about eight months. I would have gone in earlier in August, but couldn't get into Oki Health <laughs> <laughs> to see me because of COVID. Um, and then I had loads of annual leave. I didn't know you crewed annual leave when you were off sick. (laughs) So my manager was like, can you take some of your annual leave first? (laughs) Um, So I took some annual leave, so eight months in total.
0: Quite a long time then. Um, I suppose going through chemo, how many cycles did you have in the end?
2: So I had eight cycles of chemo, so it was a cycle every two weeks. Um, Four of EC and four of Paclitaxel. Um, And they were every two weeks apart from one. I managed to delay by a week.
0: And how did you find the, the chemotherapy? Obviously, they give you a very long list of side effects that can happen, and we always warn you that you know not all of them <laughs> will happen. Some will happen to varying extent. Some will happen this week, the other week, and some things will hit you when you're not expecting it.
2: Yeah. Um, so the first dose. So I did the cold cap as well, which I think to try and preserve my hair. I was so so i'm not even vain i was so vain about my hair though <laughs> I like, I'll do anything to try and keep it um so i think when i did my first session um my mum my mum came down for my chemo to start and then covid hit so she could not come anymore but she used to come down um so yeah the first one i got the cannula in fine um no i nearly fainted when they put the cannula in my blood pressure just dropped <laughs> so good start um but we figured out how to get over that after basically just chew on sugary sweets and all good um and so you went
0: through all the fertility injections but the cannulas what got you
2: yeah the cannulas just get me they just put them in and my blood pressure just drops stabbing myself fine cannula no i did it the other week um so, yeah, I nearly fainted. Um, She's was like, have you eaten breakfast? I was like, of course I am. <laughs> Dietitian. Um, and it was a cold cap that was the hardest side effect to begin with when they put it on. And it was literally like I'd slept on a really cold ice and got brain freeze for like 10 minutes. And I nearly was like, I'm so vain about my hair, but I can't do this. I need to pull it off. Like, this is awful. But after the first 10 minutes, it was, it was fine. You just Your head was just cold. But the first 10 minutes of the cold cap was just awful on that first session. Um, it was just like brain freeze. It was, I can't, if you think when you eat a nice lolly and you're like, oh my God, it's like that, but for 10 minutes. Um, but after the first session, I got woolly socks, a blanket and a hot cup of tea when they did it and I was absolutely fine. So they're my three tips for anyone doing the cold cap: woolly socks, blanket, cup of tea. Um, did, did
0: they tell you about that before you had the cold cap?
2: They said I'd get brain freeze, <laughs> so I could stop it. Um, it. To be fair, they didn't say. And then it was one of the nurses. And I was just like, "Get this off me." She was like, "No, next time you need to bring this." <laughs> I was like, "Got it." Um, the nurses were great on the thing. Um, and then when I was having the chemo. I felt okay my mum used to although my mum used to make me do sudoku with her and try and race her and she'd always beat me i think just because she's good at sudoku but i used to say no it's the chemo i'm so slow
1: so there is some research that suggests that essentially um exercising whilst you're on treatment is beneficial did you exercise during your chemotherapy
2: yeah um, so I was, I, first of all, I carried on playing hockey, and then we had to have a conversation in the December that maybe hockey wasn't the best idea, because if I broke a bone, <laughs> I would not be having chemo for a while. So I was like, yeah, maybe that is sensible. So I did stop. Um, I then carried on running and doing lots of walking and trying to do my exercise because I thought that was a good thing to do and all the data says that you should carry on being active during your treatment you get better outcomes on reflection I was probably doing a little bit too much and in January end of January when I went in um for my bloods to make sure my white white cell count had come up but it hadn't come up and I was also struggling with a lot of sores where my hair was falling out so I got a lot of folliculitis everywhere and I mean everywhere um and they had to delay my chemo a week and she basically my oncologist said to me you're doing too much you need to rest you need to stop exercising um and I was like but the data says <laughs> and she said no you're doing nothing for a week apart from a walk to the local shop so I, I took her advice and i did nothing for a week um and then i went in and I said can i have my chemo now i was like it was like an addiction i, like, I needed my chemo um, and she was like yes your white cells have come up you look a lot better you can have your chemo I was like, and can i do exercise and she said no you can go to yoga and you can do light walking so i i was then banned to yoga and light walking
0: it's interesting that the evidence is there's so much evidence around exercise i mean there are people who cycle on their bike while they have their chemo it doesn't have to be intense you know that can be enough and that can be fine um i don't think i've ever heard of a patient doing too much exercise during chemo so i'm quite impressed nick but i suppose i've known you for a while for anyone listening nick does play hockey at a very 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 good level so it's understandable that competitiveness and probably for you the distraction that you've been doing something for so long you don't want to almost deal with what's going on at the same time but this exercise will just distract you
2: it was my way of dealing with it so i was like well i can't work so i can't help people i can't work so that distraction is gone i've got my treatment which was a good i was very much like this is the plan i have to stick to it and there was milestones each time you finish your chemo your, your surgery your radiotherapy it was like I've got to get to that next milestone so that was a good focus but exercise was also my distraction so I probably was doing too much intense running or spinning um and walking everywhere and I think I I was over I was overdoing it because it was my way of Blocking everything out or if a friend said let's meet for a coffee I'd be like right I'm gonna walk there because it's good I need to get out and it just distracted me it gave me time away from my phone from people messaging me asking how I was doing which was lovely but I just didn't want to keep repeating my story um and I could just listen to podcasts so I listened to Yumi and the Big Sea, which I found really helpful um and or listen to music or it was just my way of blocking out what was going on so it was my distraction technique and then that was taken away from me and I was left
0: with nothing did you take any psychological support any psych oncology counseling were you, I, I know you talked about your mum being there during chemo and doing sudoku obviously that's not chatting but that's still stimulating your mind <laughs> it sounds like you can't sit still yeah. but when the exercise <laughs> was taken away from you did I don't know how yeah. was your psych like psychological state from it
2: yeah so they'd offered me psychological support at the start they'd offered me psych. Like, the um, fertility people had offered me psychological support and I was like no I'm fine I'm fine I'm all good I'm chill i am got my coping mechanisms Um, and then when they took they, they, they didn't take exercise away from me they told me to slow down and um, I, I crumbled I absolutely crumbled it was also January so I think I was feeling the January blues it was dark I'd had chemo on my 30th birthday and then I couldn't exercise Uh, to to the I say I couldn't I could walk I could do yoga which I really enjoyed but I couldn't exercise doing what I enjoyed doing and I was like I need support I need I need psychological support and they referred me straight away and I was seen the next week um I I saw a counsellor
0: how did you find the counselling
2: um really really helpful I now encourage so it's strange isn't it as an as an allied health professional I work on an intestinal rehabilitation unit and we have a psychologist and I tell all my patients that they need to engage have it Um, it'll be really beneficial they're going through big traumas in their life they need to deal with it and I encourage them to take it and when I was told I was like I don't need that um, but then once I did have it, oh, it was like a massive weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Um, I, it was, a, it was a safe space for an hour every two weeks where I could talk about anything that I wanted. And there was not that I felt anybody was judging me, but I sometimes did find it hard. I, I sometimes feel resentment. Um, why me? What had I done to deserve this? Um, I'd, I'd, like I said I hadn't even thought about kids all I could see was babies in prams and I was just like I've never noticed a baby in a pram before but that's all I could see um, and then when Covid hit it was even more of a it, we moved to um, online sessions but it was even more of a, a help during that it was just a, I think I think he, he never really said much as you can probably tell by the chat now I think he just let me talk for the hour then you'll be like okay see you in two weeks
0: that's a sign of a good counselor though right (laughs) I mean we're we're all I felt better
2: because I'd vented yeah I just I think I vented um but that meant I didn't have I didn't vent to my friends even though they probably wanted me to or to my partner or to my mum and my dad like they still got a lot of the brunt of it but um I think Yeah, it was just a safe space. He didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know anything about me and I could just openly talk for an hour about anything. And he was very much directed by me.
0: That's the safe space though, isn't it? I think any patients I see in clinic, their family members are the ones who are more worried... The patients are looking at you saying, "Can we just get on with this?" So I'm like, just like you. I just want to get through this radiotherapy and then I'm done, and then I can have six weeks off till I see the oncologist and a scan. Just stop talking to me. I've told you what you need to know, and then they'll leave the room sometimes, and then the husband or the wife will be like, "So Naaman, I've got all these questions. Please, can you answer them?" Yeah. But you have to support yeah. them. I think when people know you better, they know what makes you tick when you're down, etc. But yeah, counselor, they're just there to listen to you, Nick. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he was great. <laughs> And and now I just I'm like it's my patients. I'm like, look, you need to talk to the counsellor. Trust me on this. I've got experience. <laughs> like, okay.
0: So you had some radiotherapy afterwards. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Do you, we oh, had whammy. this little funny chat earlier? Do you remember what radiotherapy you had? I've got my
2: letter. <laughs> <laughs> so I had adjuvant radiotherapy. It was to my right breast. Um, twenty six. In five fractions, and then thirteen point three five, very specific. Um, in five fractions, which was a boost to the tumor bed because of my age. Um, so I think normally they give the first dose, but because I was younger, they gave me a little extra boost.
0: How How did you find the radiotherapy?
2: Um, probably the easiest bit of all the treatment, apart from having to go to the hospital every single day, was tiring that's what hit me the tiredness with it and I I do think it was just having it was just going every day and it didn't take long I was in and out probably in half an hour um but it was that just going every day I didn't realize how tired I would get it was the tiredness that I found the hardest with it
0: did you sort of feel prepared about the radiotherapy so obviously I think for your type of treatment people can go through surgery chemotherapy have a long wait as well if they've had any delays from healing and then when they come to radiotherapy I think as you were kind of saying you know it was the easiest because it was at the end and it was quickest but do you feel like you were prepared after everything you'd already been through
2: um yeah I think the oncologist I saw specific for my radiotherapy treatment really well prepared me I I wasn't they had to give me my radiotherapy quite After my surgery within a certain time frame. They wanted me to have started my radiotherapy and I was healing really well. I was doing my physio exercises because I had to get my hands above my head and I was like, I'm gonna do that. (laughs) I definitely made sure I did that. Um because I was like nothing's delaying this radiotherapy because I need to go back to work. Um so what was the question? I've forgotten chemo chemo brain still exists two years later <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's okay it's just about like, how prepared you felt for radiotherapy so okay. treatment um, side effects
2: so yeah they'd really pre- yeah she'd really prepared me um and then I went and my mum had had radiotherapy so I had a little bit of an idea from what she'd said what what went on um and then when I went and got my NHS tattoos I'm very proud of um <laughs> again i think because i'd had numerous ct scans and dexa scans and then the the one where they tattoo you as well i think going in for the actual radiotherapy because it wasn't a tunnel and it was just a big room and i was often left on my own in a room um, And because of covid i was off i was got used to being on my own all the time um i think i yeah i felt quite well prepared but i i also do a lot of reading but
0: because you're an ally health things. professional, you read all the right, respectable, edu- evidence-based stuff, not just random things on Google.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Good. Yeah, I I banned myself from Google. Um, I there's a book um by Trisha Greenhall and I forgot a name. You've had her on your podcast. <laughs> She's.
0: Liz O'Reardon. Mm,
2: Yeah, Liz, I read them. So I got that book. That was the first thing I did. I bought that book. I read that cover to cover. um, And then the only time I looked at anything else, I used like specific like Macmillan or cancer websites to access information about each stage of treatment. So I'd read a little bit about the radiotherapy. Um, And yeah, like I said, when I had the tattoos, they talked me through it. and they also gave me a few tips at at that appointment about how I might get tired, which I didn't believe them, but I did, it did happen. Um, And then just soreness to the area Um, and it becoming quite red and dry. So I'd already got my E45 from my chemo. So I just put that on religiously every day and that it didn't get too red. Um, And then just in the future, protecting it from the sun.
0: Perfect like would say you're probably a bit of a dream patient (laughs) i think it's difficult (laughs) there's so much information we want to give to people going through cancer treatments it's always hard to know how to pitch it sometimes but i suppose for you in a way you're kind of setting an example that yes there's education based stuff but sometimes you just need to not read as well
2: yeah i think i tell my patients i'm like dr google is the worst thing you could do you'll literally be Dying tomorrow if you read dr google um or you'll have 50 conditions that you've never heard of um so i just tried to stick to specific things but i also i did utilize uh, the people around me that were doing my treatment but like, can i just ask you like there was one thing that um i think my oncologist just put her head in her hands and she was like what paper have you read so i read something so paclitaxel the chemo um i, I <laughs> but it said if you put nail varnish on it protects your nails because it can it can really damage your nails the the chemo so i was like so can i get my nails painted every week with a dark nail varnish she was like if you want to because i'd found some paper somewhere that said it helps protect your nails Um, just to say i think it's only
0: for paclitaxel because other chemotherapy agents you cannot put nail varnish
2: on <laughs> so, only practice that. So, if anyone um, listening, if you like, want to do
0: that and look cool like Nick did, <laughs> make sure you speak to your oncologist first. <laughs>
2: yeah. I did speak to her first. She looked at me like I'd lost a plot and was like, "You want to go get your nails done? Off you go." Um, but yeah, so sometimes I think even as healthcare professionals, we we cling to slightly strange and weird. Things, But I always asked the healthcare professional that was doing it at the time. So, it, for example, with the radiotherapy, I knew that it was going to get sore and dry. And I was like, well, what creams can I put on it to help prevent that? And they were like, E45, because it, it's like, don't put anything too fragrant and things on it. So, um, yeah, I always asked. Thanks. And I think it's being guided by the patient in front of you. So if you've got someone like me that just wants to know all the information, then go with it. But you'll get some people that will be overwhelmed by you telling them about E45. And I suppose it's judging when someone's a bit too overwhelmed and isn't taking that information in. Whereas I turn up with my paper and my notebook, my list of questions, (laughs) and then writing all the answers down. Um, So... I think everyone's different. If your patient turns up with a list of questions, then you know you're going to be in for a long session.
0: Uh, I think Joe. I know Joe's a huge advocate for this, with especially with her students as well. Is, you know, if patients have a question, you, even if you don't know the answer, you can signpost or you can get someone else to help. Yeah. You might not be the expert in that situation to help. But, you know, if someone's coming to you, even you haven't only got five minutes, it's important that you help that person in front of you. So I know Joe. I've sat in on a few of her lectures now, um, always pushing her students to be the best they can possibly be. So it's nice to see that. Um, I suppose one question that you've touched on with the nails, Nick, is um, I suppose body confidence going through chemotherapy. You said you weren't vain, yeah. but you said you went through the cold cap. Um, mm-hmm. How did it all make you feel? Because chemotherapy, especially eight cycles, that's quite a lot to go through.
2: Yeah, um, the cold cap worked for a, up to a point. I kept my hair, but by the last by cycle six, I had a big bald patch here. And do you know, in COVID, the Tiger King was um, all the thing to watch. Honest to God, I look like him. It was awful. <laughs> um, and I used to wear my hair. I don't I don't have a bald patch now, but initially wearing my hair like this covered it. Um, and I could get away with it. And it was winter, so it was hats. Hats were great. Um, and then summer started. But I think it was the hair that I found the biggest issue to deal with um i was lucky before just before covid hit i went on a look good feel better um course where they teach you how to do your makeup um and i i went my makeup bag's about that big and the woman doing it laughed and i left with a new makeup bag that was about this big with all stuff that they taught me how to use just like primers and contouring, how to draw your eyebrows. I was like, oh my word, I need an extra 30 minutes to get ready in the morning. Um, actually lifelong skills. Um, so I think it was the hair that I found the biggest thing to try and deal with. The eyebrows I could draw on, that was fine. But my issue with the hair was, I didn't feel like I looked like a cancer patient. Um, I didn't feel unwell when I found the lump. I didn't feel particularly unwell at the start of chemo. I felt tired and groggy by the end and had chemo brain and fog. Um, But I felt that not having my hair, I looked like a cancer patient. And at the time, that was a massive thing for me. Looking back now, I think if if it were to happen again would I, I i'd like to think that i wouldn't be so bothered by it but i think i might i would be um it, it was just i and with the steroids as well you just get that steroid face and no hair and then i got some wigs um didn't really take to them so i ended up with headscarves, um, and it took a long time for me to build confidence to go out in the headscarf. It was COVID, so no one was seeing anybody, um, and we, we were shielding. But even just going to the hospital in my headscarf took quite a lot of energy, and that's something I talked a lot with my counsellor about. Um, the, the whole headscarf and then eventually I started enjoying it because I was like I get to try different headscarves, I get to do loads of shopping, um, but I think that was it was the hair loss and looking like a cancer patient. Um, the tattoos didn't bother me too much. Um, I get a bit conscious of them sometimes at the moment um, because one's, one's like not i don't wear revealing tops i'm often quite covered up but say i'm on a beach or i just went on a hand party um and i felt like i had to say to people it isn't a blackhead it's a tattoo <laughs> um just in case they saw it not that anyone ever saw it it's it's silly um but i feel like i have to tell people what it is before they see it um, so i'm still a little bit conscious about the 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 little dots um, I call them my whole worlds, like Phoebe and friends said. And everyone says, oh, have you done your bucket list? Because um, when, when I found the lump, I said to my other half, oh, if it's cancer, I'm getting a tattoo. Don't know why. And then the NHS gave me three. And he keeps saying, oh, he said you're going to get a t- t- tattoo. And I'm like, I've got three whole worlds, don't you know? Um, but I am quite conscious of them um sometimes because they look like little blackheads i don't know if you can make them look any better
0: there's a lot of research been going into this there is uh like uv light ones or there's surface guided radiotherapy where you don't need tattoos at all so things are advancing quite quickly and joe and i've talked about this a lot on the podcast there's a lot of people who are very conscious of them and you can see them so yeah um it's a constant reminder to some people i know lots of people get them covered up with uh, different tattoos um or things like that as well um but yeah you've got three free tattoos nick you're gonna get another one
2: (laughs) i don't know i keep thinking i might get one to cover one of them that's what i have been thinking but i've been through all of this had all (laughs) all this medical treatment i'm a bit scared (laughs) fair enough (laughs) crazy as it sounds
0: (laughs) you might faint just like the cannula so you don't want to do that
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: true. <laughs> um I know we've talked about kind of side effects and stuff. Is there so you finished treatment, you know, not that long ago, but have you experienced anything to do with late effects or did you were you aware of the late effects going through?
2: Um no, I think any kind of effects that I get I tell my team, but I don't that's the one thing I don't know if I was really guided on on what late effects there are or well, what support it uh, my team were great and they still are amazing they still follow me up every single year um but it did feel like treatment finished and then it was like oh, I don't have an appointment for six months <laughs> what do I do um in terms of the late effects I think the biggest thing was the movement in my shoulder I did all my exercises um I, I have got lots of movement but it took it it took so long to get the full range of movement back and just the strength in it I just had no strength so I finished my treatment in the July and I was I was back playing hockey in the September but boy did my shoulder hurt after um uh, or if I do like a, a long drive I just my shoulder would ache like I'd want to click it all the time um so I did have a few physio sessions to give me some um, extra exercises to strengthen it. But even now, when it, I feel like it's back to fuller strength, I, I still, after a long day or a long drive, it still feels a bit, I can't explain, just a bit heavy. Um, I mentioned chemo fog. I don't know if after two years you can still call it chemo fog. Um, but I do find sometimes I know someone's name and I know who they are but I just it just I can't get it out um or I I'll be in probably shouldn't say this my patient's listening um I'll be listening to a patient and then I'll I'll have to say to them can can you just repeat what your question was because I've just completely lost what they said and I, I don't know if that's just me as a person <laughs> it definitely didn't happen before i had chemo i don't know if two years later i can still blame chemo <laughs> i think you can but sometimes i just get these like vacant episodes
0: yeah it's quite common um quite a few people yeah. who come i've seen as well it does continue for a bit longer um, and i think we say from late effects from radiotherapy it could be three to six months afterwards to 20 plus years down the line um so yeah. that yeah I suppose just yeah. something to reassure you, there are more kind of late effects clinics, especially with radiotherapy coming across the country now. We've talked about this before we've had uh two amazing late effects specialists um come on the podcast as well, so it is getting out there a bit more um
2: yeah. so yeah and I, and i i do I do believe if I had had any like particular effects like if I'd had lymphedema, for example or um anything that was particularly bothering me there'd be somewhere I could go but I've kind of just got on with it and just apologised for my patients when I can't remember what they asked me <laughs> so can you repeat that
0: do you tell them why
2: uh, it depends on the patient so some of the patients know I you can't hide it um, when you've been gone for eight months so a lot of our patients we have for years and years and years so when you've not been there for eight months and then you come back and I went from long blonde hair to this weird short brown crawl, <laughs> they knew you couldn't hide it. They knew that I'd been off sick and I'd said to the consultants that like, you can tell them that I'm taking some time out. I'm not very well and that's what they said to the patient so I do say some if it's a patient that I know well I'm like oh yeah I, I'm sorry I've just got a bit of my chemo brain <laughs> but I, I'm careful because I don't want them to think that I'm incompetent I'm compl- I'm not it's just that it, I it doesn't happen often but I do just lose the train sometimes and and we usually laugh it off to be fair they're usually so understanding and and then they're like are you okay and I'm like no we're talking about you <laughs> um they're 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 really yeah they're really good it's a
0: consequence of treatment isn't it and i think patients if not anyone will always understand the consequences of treatment or side effects or just their general condition especially in your line of work um
2: yeah yeah and i think once you tell them it, it sometimes it's good for them to know that we do get sick too and I think sometimes it's helped my consultations because sometimes I'm like well yeah I completely understand how you're feeling and I can see that I could see the patients sit, sitting there being like well you've got no idea you've never been sick but we do know because we we see it and we we live through it with them but sometimes I say well yeah i know i've i've experienced something similar um and then they're like oh I might listen to you a bit more <laughs> um so it does work in my advantage sometimes that <laughs> when i'm honest and and just say to them yeah, i'm sorry i've just just lost you there
0: well, it's empathy isn't it i mean you're kind of getting down on their level and understanding something similar to what they're going through but um you talked about obviously your patience knowing that you've had that what was the support like going back to work? Did you go straight back in or?
2: Um, so I'd kept in touch with my manager um, throughout. So I think the NHS, each each policy is different depending where you work. But for us, we had to keep in touch, I think, every two months. And we agreed when I went off how we would keep in touch. So she, she just called me. and was also in touch a bit on email and I'd sent her my sick notes. Um, so we were in touch quite regularly on how the treatment was going my colleagues um, my, my close team of dietitians and also I work quite closely with a lot of um, other healthcare professionals in quite a close-knit MDT so they all knew why I was off I was all honest with them Um, so it they all knew, um, I'd kept in touch with them all, even through COVID, they, they regularly messaged me just to see how I was, how it was going. So it made going back a little bit easier. I was itching to get back. I was like, right, finished phrasal I was on the phone to my manager, I was like, right, treatment's done, can I come back? And she was like, whoa, 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 <laughs> can you slow down? <laughs> she was like, just see if you've got any side effects. <laughs> over the tiredness um so we agreed that i would go back in the august but like like we've talked about i would use up some annual leave um going back i had to speak to occupational health and um, before i went back because of covid because i'd been shielding they were still worried that was this was before vaccines were in as well so he had to because i work in an acute setting I couldn't work from home. I work with patients and I didn't want to work from home. I wanted to go back in. So we had to have a discussion with occupational health about the risks and what we could do to mitigate them. So only seeing patients that were green, um, wearing masks, things like that. Um, and then I, I actually asked for a phased return um, because I have quite a big commute so I commute about an hour um into work um so I asked for a phase return but rather than a phase return where I do like half days I asked I think initially I did half days and I did Monday Wednesday and Friday so that I had days off to recover after my initial day and I asked if I could then build up the hours on those days so that I always had a rest day in between just in case I was getting tired um and then we started building up the hours on the days that I went in because I I said to my manager on occupational health if I just come in every day for half a day with it's the travel that's gonna tire me more than anything um and occupational health and my manager were fully supportive of the phased return um I had it was over four weeks I had a meeting with my manager after every week to see how I was feeling. So whilst the the plan was in place for the phased return, if I felt that it was too much, and I needed to de- delay, delay it and do longer, it could be adjusted. Or if I felt like I was okay, we could adjust next week. So it was a bit quicker. So if whilst there was a, a four week plan, it, it was fully flexible. Um, and I literally walked into the I went in on the Friday. It's the first day um, and they'd put a big welcome back sign up um, and they were literally like just try and log on to the computer and that took me two hours because <laughs> they'd logged me off and locked my account and then trying to speak to my NHS IT I was like great <clears throat> and my badge wasn't working so I sorted that out. <laughs> um, so it was good going in on the Friday because it was just like I got to see everyone because my plan was I would go in every so often just to see everyone but then because of COVID I wasn't I wasn't allowed in so I never really saw anyone so it was nice just going on Friday had chats with everyone um and then it was good because on the Monday it was like right I'm in I'm here to work and it was literally like nothing had, everything had changed because of COVID but nothing had changed if that makes any sense
0: I think for anyone who works <laughs> in NHS that makes perfect sense <laughs> <laughs> But no, I think what you've touched on is, is really interesting So I think we as healthcare professionals, I talk about phased return to work, but you don't think about those little intricate details like your badge might not work or, yeah, NHS IT have locked you out so you can't log back in and it's going to take you two hours. But did you feel any guilt because you couldn't log back in straight away? Uh,
2: no, I think I'd originally felt really guilty in the December and the January when I wasn't working. And then I had a little bit more guilt when it was the COVID, when the COVID pandemic hit. Um, to the point I'd even email my manager and I was like, is there anything I can do from home? She's like, no, you're on sick. <laughs> Go away, <laughs> recover, rest. Um, so they were the times I'd felt guilty, but I think I talked a lot about the guilt with the psychologist. Um, so I'd learned to kind of not feel guilty about not being able to log in. And
0: it's just like NHS. Here we are. It's fair enough. I think yeah, it's amazing that you've been able to go through all of that, make it back into work, and obviously I know you're exercising loads again now. So, <laughs> um, so we've definitely gone more than we said we would, but it's been so interesting. That you've given so many top tips already, especially around like the cold cap, um, things like that. But what sort of top <laughs> tips do you have for you know anyone listening?
2: Ooh um i think f- from a patient perspective go in with your questions written down if you can take someone with you or have them on speaker on the telephone if you can't take them in because you won't take everything in that's being said but they will um and don't be afraid to ask your healthcare professionals questions even if they sound silly like can i paint my nails don't be afraid to ask. From a healthcare perspective, I think we're good at giving out advice, but we're not always good at taking it. So take advice. Um, I think don't be afraid to talk to your manager about anything that you're going through. I, I know it can be hard if you maybe don't have that relationship, but I do think if you can it makes it easier as a manager to understand what is going on and um, so if you can try and just talk to your manager it doesn't have to go any further and um, it definitely didn't with my manager um, and I think if you if you are unfortunate in that unfortunate position where you are sick as a healthcare professional don't battle through you you don't you don't do yourself any favours and sometimes we don't put ourselves first but sometimes you have to and no one will thank you for going in and bustling through your patients won't thank you your colleagues won't thank you and you won't thank yourself so put yourself first take that time off to rest recover recuperate and you will go back in feeling um feeling a lot better um and do a phased return Oh, and now regret the eight months I had off <laughs> that I didn't do much <laughs> had all these plans I was going to do an Excel course I was going to sell all my photos didn't do anything, watch Netflix
0: <laughs> that's fine, you needed it <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah don't, don't be afraid to rest we need to, we need to look after if we put ourselves first and look after ourselves, we're far better professionals and Healthcare professionals for our patients. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much. So, right, really, really good top tips. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you to everyone for listening to RadChat. Uh, your hosts today have been uh, Naomi joe Canderson and, and Joe McNamara. A huge thank you to our guest, Nick Vernon. Uh, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted uh, along with any links to resources and literature uh, we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. So, our next guest feature will At Maggie's as a CEO and what the charity does. Thank you for listening and take care.